Hello and welcome back to another episode of Charting Queer Health, a podcast centered at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. As always, I'm your host, Matt Lesky. I identify as a cis, white, gay man, but I'm also a Chicago resident. And most importantly, I get to sit down with various experts across our community and across our organization to learn from their expertise, amplify their voices, and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Joining us today is Owen Keenan, LGBTQ writer and historian to kind of educate us on uh, broadly the the history of of queer spaces in Chicago, but we'll kind of let him uh, dictate the narrative here. Owen, thank you so much for coming. Um, Would you mind uh, introducing yourself a little bit more about what you do and your pronouns, please? Sure. Uh, My name is Owen Keenan. Uh, He, him. I... uh, A lot of my work is sort of the social history of LGBTQ history in Chicago. My focus is more on the social aspect, how people live their lives. My my ultimate goal would be to sort of connect uh, someone reading about history today as thoroughly as possible to what I'm writing about by using, you know, all sorts of different examples. So... I guess you could say, like, my goal would be to actually facilitate time travel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to give people a taste sort of, of, the, of yeah. the past. I I found you on Instagram uh, around the time they were opening the um, AIDS garden, which we can dive into oh, what yes. that is. Yes. Um, and I was just fascinated by all these pictures. I'd also been in, um, there's a bar on Broadway, um, Wangs, and they have all these photos of uh, people lounging on the Belmont Rocks. And I was like... I know this is somewhere in Chicago, and I'm curious, and I saw more photos on your Instagram, in addition to photos of, you know, establishments that have closed since in different queer gathering spaces, and I was just so intrigued by this legacy of queer culture that I had no idea. I mean... No, you're fine. I'm just... I was going to say, like, I had moved here a year ago, and so the only queer spaces I knew were, like, Sidetrack and Roscoe's, and, like, everything on Halston, that was about it. So the fact that, I mean, there's years and years of... Of, of queer culture that led up into this is kind of what I wanted to dive into. So we've got, I mean, a long and winding path. Who knows okay. where we're going to take it uh, this episode, but I'm excited. Well, good. And, and thank you. And one of the things with the Instagram account I really want to do is to show things that have a danger of slipping through the cracks historically, whether they're people or bars, or incidents, or just even faces. And I think that's the easiest way to sort of leave a legacy for younger people, because sometimes it's hard to feel as much of a connection to to great achievements. But it's easier, for me anyway, to feel a connection with sort of this legacy of just wanting to hang out with your friends and what did you do for fun and how did you get laid and what whatever the the, the yeah. thing was but it's nothing that was written down and that sort of is the anchor i think of our history is a lot of the the oral histories and the personal connections that people have to places yeah i love that concept because it's easy to you know look online or go in a history book of like you know important queer turning points and achievements and like you know stonewall and all these things but it's also very hard to put like a personal face to it i know for me like reading through your posts it struck me that like the the people in the situations and like the fun people were having is not so dissimilar to the fun that my friends and i have and so 
relating that back of like this, you know, uh, striving to be a part of a social circle and to, to have fun and, and live your life in Chicago as a queer person. And is, live freely. And live freely, yeah. Because you can see that a lot of times in the photos too. Yeah. The people are sort of reveling in this new liberation that was new. They had, they had 10 years ago, maybe when they were in high school, whatever, they didn't get to experience that. That changed, you know, again, as, as younger queer people came into the culture. But I think it's easy to forget how much of a political act just hanging out with your friends and sleeping with another consenting adult, no matter, regardless, yeah. that those were really revolutionary acts. Yeah. That was a big deal. Queer liberation, gay liberation, sex liberation, they all joined and they were all sort of ways of saying the way that things were done before just doesn't really work for us. Yeah, and you, I'm so pleased that you use the word liberation because one of Howard Brown's six like core tenets is rooted in LGBTQ liberation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's how, how Howard Brown grew up out of, you know, a group of medical students above a grocery store to, you know, running a dozen clinics around the city today. So I love that. Um, liberation comes from liberation is one of those things that you cannot you cannot even begin to overestimate how much liberation, self-worth pride, all those things come into account. One of the first, um, one of the great stories I love about uh, healthcare starting in, in Chicago, the modern sort of healthcare, yeah. was at Man's Country in probably around 1974. And some doctors came in and first, well, first of all, some doctors came in and were very rude mm. and they got turned away because they just, they came in and they demanded to see someone who worked there because they'd been reported for syphilis and mm. all this. And, you know, the person refused to see them. So then three other, two other doctors, I'm sorry, came in later in the week and they were young and they were understanding and they had a different approach to gay men's health because that was a whole new thing. You didn't have, you, can you imagine going to your doctor and having to be closeted about what you were doing sexually? Yeah. Yeah. It, so the whole thought of men reclaiming their mm -hmm. sexual selves was huge. And at man's country, how that eventually developed was that there became an STD testing site STIs today, yeah. but an STD testing site and the resident drag queen, uh, master of ceremonies, etc. at man's country was Wanda Lust and Wanda Lust joined into that by wearing a nurse outfit and becoming nurse lust. And the way that developed with nurse lust and the doctors was that it branched out to have a mobile testing unit, which was also known as the STD van. So this van would drive around um, busy nights and say they would park on, um, as a, like a current example, say they would park the van on Roscoe and Halstead. Mm -hmm. Wanda Lust would run into the bars and try to, dressed as a nurse, yeah. so she's like six foot seven in nurse drag, 
to try to get people to come out to get tested for STDs. And if you went with Nurse Lust to get tested, she gave you a cookie. And it might sound like an absurd idea, but that approach got a thousand people tested the first week. A thousand people tested for STDs, STIs. Yeah, that... I love that story because that exactly reinforces something that I've heard from a few different guests on this podcast is that healthcare only works when it's patient-centered, which sounds very trivial or like uh, very obvious, but uh, you know, you can't, I always use the field of dreams quote, like if you build it, they will come. Like if you build a health center, that doesn't necessarily mean that it serves the needs of, you know, the neighborhood that it's in. You have to tailor healthcare and, and, and tailor the experience to the type of people you're serving and, and nurse lust doing that is a perfect example. Like you can't just stand outside or, or be those uh, doctors walking into man's country and demanding things. You well, have to do it on their terms. I think the other thing too, was that when you're dealing with, especially people of that era, cause think of gay liberation, we're free mm-hmm. and everything else. What Wanda did and those doctors did at uh, man's country and other doctors like them elsewhere, were that they made doing something like getting tested for STDs part of just the responsible thing to do as a sexually active adult. Um, The fact that they did it at a bathhouse was a huge deal. That's your demographic. And the fact that they were taking away the stigma of doing that. And Wanda was doing that. They were turning it into something fun, something accessible, something that had no shame attached to it. Because again, we're coming out of that era when you know you'd have to go to a clinic or slink like into your family yeah. or slink into your family doctor where did you possibly get this yeah. you know it was a different age of of the taking charge of healthcare yeah you the, know? the ownership of it yeah and saying yeah. we're going to make this system work for us and not the other way around but again that all comes back to liberation yeah. and empowerment because mm-hmm. it it comes from the fact of saying this is no longer working for us and yeah. that, you know, that spilled over into healthcare too. Yeah. Um, one of our early episodes was talking about how to advocate for yourself in a healthcare setting. And it's on a much smaller scale these days because on like broadly doctors and providers are a bit more um, uh, accommodating and, and, and reasonable and things. Oh, sure. um, but there's still that fear. Like I know I grew up in Southwest Michigan, which is um, very conservative, very small town. Uh, and my family doctor treated all the rest of my family as well. And so I, when I came out and started being sexually active, I didn't come out to my doctor for another like three years. Cause I just didn't, I didn't know if he was going to tell my parents, which he obviously can't, but like it just, I wasn't sure about it. And so we had a discussion on how do you be open to the doctor and ask for the things that you need, because it is that liberation of owning what you need, asking for it, uh, and really being your own best advocate, whether it's healthcare, socially, culturally, sexually, whatever it is. Um, so that concept of liberation, I'm, I'm, I love getting to know more of how that's rooted in, you know, the Chicago cultural scene and, oh, sure. and where that all well, comes just from. the fact that you know, the person would be comfortable enough to tell that to their doctor or not tell that yeah. to their doctor. I mean, that's a huge thing to keep a secret about. Yeah. You know, yeah. And it's, it, it, but it was just changed everything. I love that. I love that. Yeah. So, 
so what time, what year, years-ish around was that? Did you say? 75. What was, was the it? V- 1975 75. was okay. the VD van. Gotcha. So I'm interested because that, a lot of people point towards like HIV and AIDS as being the first time that uh, queer people really had to own their their health because HIV was such, so prevalent and, and, and you know, it, it was really do or die in that case, yes. but I I like that this kind of advent came around before then because it, you know, do you think that that set us up for more? I don't know how, how does the HIV AIDS crisis fit into that then? Well, what happened the the long and short of it was when uh, AIDS happened, and the bathhouses closed in New York, and L.A. and San Francisco. They stayed hope open. They stayed open here in Chicago because Chicago had a history of being a place of, uh, first of all, um, STD testing, and also of sexual um, education. Yeah. So it became more like a place where people could potentially learn about HIV versus just the sex. So it was very different, I think, when it came time to sort of give a case about why um, yeah. the bathhouses in Chicago stay open. That's interesting because I even last week, as Monkeypox continues to, oh gosh, yeah. to grow, uh, Steamworks on Halstead was one of the first places to um, partner with... Um, Chicago Department of Public Health and hand out vaccines for it. Uh, you had to still like be in Steamworks to get it, but like that that marrying of bathhouse culture and you know personal sexual health still happens today. Um, so that's interesting that you brought it up that Chicago bathhouses had like pivoted from just the sex to making sure that you know it was healthy. Is that a, is that a bad take? No, no, it's it's a take. I think it's sort of a. I would say that's what. That's what it looks like. I think the issue is a lot more complex Mm -hmm. when things happened, but it was a way to maybe connect the fact of the two. I Mm -hmm. think what happened with New York and San Francisco and L.A. is you have, first of all, you have an epidemic raging. You have an administration that's not mentioning it. You have the sudden closing of all the bathhouses, like chained front doors, stickers on the front, shut down by the Board of Health, whatever, and no education because the same administration that wasn't saying anything was also cutting the budgets on any sort of uh, sexual health literature, counseling, anything like that. So what you had was a panic and there was no sort of... um, there was no sort of comprehensive place or, or cohesive place, I think. Yeah. As much to, like you said, with, with the monkeypox, to sort of maybe educate the, the demographic that needs to hear it the most. Yeah. Yeah. That was something we, I mean, had to be really mindful of with COVID as well, of making sure that information in the vaccines um, are disseminated in an equitable way. Because oh, sometimes the people of that... Course that want it the most, uh, in, like for example, with a monkeypox vaccine, um, we 
are cognizant of the fact that like South side and West side people might not be the first to ask for the vaccine, but they're the ones that probably need it the most, um, or stand them to lose the most if, mm -hmm. you know, dealing with monkeypox. So, uh, we're walking this tightrope of, um, you know, understanding that, you know, North side gays, so to speak, uh, are beating down our door for the vaccine, but we have to understand sure. who needs it most. And so, I think that um, struggle with public health has always been there of making sure that the people and the information uh, or the information is giving to the people that need it the most. Definitely, definitely. So during HIV AIDS, there was no, I mean, I liken it to pandemics that I've gone through, which is COVID. You know, you have Howard Brown trying mm -hmm. to hand out vaccines and stuff. There was nothing like that for HIV AIDS. There was no authority, no public. I leaders. moved here in... 19 well i i moved into the neighborhood i remember in 1985 and you know i mean aids had been in the news you know from grid to everything else for a while by then and there was no test um i went and got tested at there used to be a, a, a I, i'm not sure if it's still there it was near clark and diversity down by that intersection mm -hmm. And it was, you know, knowing your results at that point was still a death sentence um, or, or not a, you know, it, it turned out it wasn't always, but right. it, at the time it, it did. You it certainly were, felt like it. Yeah. It's, yeah. And uh, it, it took a month to get back. I remember that too. It was, wow. yeah, it was, it was this sort of situation. And where, I have a hard time waiting my like 40 yeah, minutes for a rapid was, HIV. It was, like, um. You know, it was it was a very different time. Yeah. And it was a panic. And to tell you the truth, if that clinic would not have been there, I would have gone out of my mind. Yeah. I mean, there was some some there was a clinic there who knew what was going on, who would listen, who weren't, you know, this the admin Reagan didn't say it for five years after he was in office. It was ridiculous. Yeah. You know? It would be like if COVID happened and no one cared. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and people felt enough frustration, even with, you know, a robust government response to COVID. I can't imagine what it was like during that time with absolutely no response from the government. You feel like you're shouting and no one's hearing you. It was, it was that, it was, um, you know, it extended culturally too. It was, it was down to like acceptable com comic humor. Uh, like yeah. that, yeah, like, like that. We thing. have to laugh about it, otherwise we'll cry type of thing. Like, no, I'm uh, talking about like, well, you know, I'm talking about like, oh my God, no wonder, you know, well, wonder uh, this, like that kind like humor of hate. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And I don't know how prevalent it was, but let me tell you, if that, all that other stuff is going on, that's the voice you hear. Yeah. You know, those, and the thing is, is that, that was also the time when I was just stepping into everything, you know, um, and um, my circumstances turned out okay, but what it did was that it made me see um, just how important this community was, basically. I mean, this was this was the community that cared about me, not the big community, not that not the Reagan administration. They were like, you know, they could care less. Right. Um, but 
this community in Chicago, this LGBTQ community, all came together. And I tell you, it was the worst time, but it was also, I saw the most beautiful acts of selflessness and giving and just charity, sweetness, everything. Yeah. It, um, it was really, if there was ever a point where I thought, you know, well, maybe like, you know, I'm just gay and it's just one other aspect of my life. And, you know, I can just like everybody else know when I, that's when I saw these are the people that will have my back. You know, every letter of LGBTQ will be there. And it, 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 it cemented like a love affair where, you know, sometimes I remember when I came out, like the biggest fear was like, we don't want you to be alone. That was the biggest, mm. you know, that I'd lead this, you know, 1950s, Solitary, yeah. like lonely life and, you know, sitting on the bar stool, you know, bemoaning my fate. But um, this showed me that it was like, no, if you're, if you're open to it, you have a community at your disposal that is, I tell you, it is a gift. It mm. is a gift. Yeah. I think that's so interesting to hear because I had kind of the reverse conversation with my family when I moved here um, because I had been living with, I came out to my parents, but I lived, continued to live with them for like three years. So my sexuality yeah. wasn't really on the forefront of my mind because sure. I was living in their basement. I wasn't going on dates. I was working two jobs. It just wasn't a thing. And I reached a point where I was like, I need to be a part of a queer community. Mm -hmm. And my mom was like, I don't understand the need for that. Like, why can't you just be happy with your friends here in West Michigan? And I was like, I do have a lot of great friends here in West Michigan, but I know I knew from the few queer friendships I had then, I was like, it's not the same. Uh, you know, having those shared experiences and the thing, the unspoken things that you know that you share with somebody. Mm -hmm. uh, and I and I was I had visited here before, and I was like, I just I I couldn't articulate it at the time, but I was like having a community that welcomes every part of you and doesn't just welcome some of you and tolerate some of you uh is is huge and that's something that you know my mom especially is still like wrapping her head around like you know you're, you're happy there right like this is what you want I was like absolutely um so I love that that sense of um wanting a community that you truly belong in is um timeless truly um you know what's funny about your story just seeing the difference in in generations. Oh. I'm, I'm, what, how old are you? I'm 28. 28. I'm, I'm a B63. Mm -hmm. And what it, what's interesting is that that concept, like my parents' concept that there even would be a community for me to go to, just didn't enter the picture. I right. mean, they didn't see that. They saw like what they grew up thinking about queer people as right. literally like, you know, the low brimmed hat, drunk at a bar, you know, right. by themselves. Social outcast yeah, pariah. Yeah, yeah, social pariah. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, your parent, yeah, parent. And it didn't, I mean, it wasn't really, I mean, it was not out of, there was no, they were genuinely like, right, that, that was, was their concept of what they thought it meant. Right. And that, I mean, that changed. That stereo you know, like, stereotypes always have a little bit of basis in reality. Yeah. And so, you know, early on in queer history, I'm sure that was the case. Um, but oh, yeah. and trust me, I've been the 
I've been the sad gay at the bar, true. Mm. So that it's just not accurate all the time, but it, it has right. been accurate at right. times in the yeah. past, you know. And, and it's funny how we went from that to like my mom knowing that there is a queer community and then like wondering why I feel like I want to be a part of it. And she's, and she, you know, still asks questions like I, before I moved here, my boyfriend was like out at sidetrack watching Drag Race or something with our, now our friends, his friends at the time. And she's like, you feel comfortable him being there, like surrounded by other gay men. And I was like, yeah, they're also our friends. And so like the concept of like, being friends with people you could potentially be sexually attracted to. Like she never got the concept of like platonic, sure. you know, relationships, well, even with my sister and, and, and well. guys and stuff. And so, yeah, just having her like wrap her mind around like queer community is interesting to like answer her questions as far as all of that goes. But it's, yeah, it's interesting to see how it's evolved. Well, and it's the, and doing things like that, it's amazing how much people want to understand if they allow themselves and how much they want to educate themselves. Yeah. I mean, I said that about my parents, but my parents definitely came around, but they just had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of it is uh, just exposure and education. Sure, of course. Um, I, I, I always have to like put things in terms that my, you know, parents or family will understand and like, you know, I was all, all the gays watching the finale of RuPaul's Drag Race. I was like, this is like you going, to, my, like dad going to a bar with friends to watch a game. Like, it's just, you know, it's a social thing. It's And she's like, oh, that makes sense. And, well, and I think that's something too, going back to what you were saying about wanting from a community, is it's important to have a community that understands sort of different parts of you or different aspects of you. Because although you can share a lot of things with your friends and, you know, or your family. I mean, mm -hmm. there's some things that like you just get from your friends. Yeah. You know? It's, yeah. Your family. <laughs> that was something I struggled like, with for a long time. Cause my mom and I are best friends and she's like, why, you know, like, what are they doing for you that I'm not? And I was like, yeah, there's just certain things that you can only get from friends and like people yeah. that understand you in that way. Um, so that's, yeah, it's just fun to think about how it's changed and how people learn and grow and understand it all. But in terms of Chicago's queer culture, we talked about it at the beginning of the episode about the, the AIDS garden oh, now yes, and yes. Um, what used to be the Belmont rocks. Yes. So um, dive into that a little bit oh because that's gosh. a huge oh. part of Chicago queer culture that I don't think I, um, about five years ago, I went down to the area where used to be the Belmont Rocks and I took a picture and it looks kind of like a landing strip now. It's very level and everything. And I got home and I put it next to a picture that I took probably in 1985 and, uh, you know, put them beside one another, juxtaposed them and uh, said, are the rocks dead? Mm. And it prompted like this big... I mean, I thought it was me. I didn't realize the, the Belmont Rocks were, um, had a kind of emotional attachment for a lot of people. And people just really started responding. And it was this queer space that, again, it, they were bulldozed in 2003. It was just far enough back where it was very... Uh, that whole culture, that whole world was very in danger of slipping through the cracks because mm. um, it was it was oral history. It was never a it was never like it. It made the news every once in a while, but yeah. nothing in depth. And 
nothing other than someone got arrested there or this happened or, you know, right. whatever photo essay maybe from in, you know, gay Chicago or something. But there wasn't a lot of sort of oral histories of people's memories and the importance of queer space. Yeah. And people started sending pictures and things. I have pictures that go back you know, that the people have sent me from the early 60s, from like 1960, 62. Um, so you're talking a decade pre-Stonewall. And they're hanging out at the Belmont Rocks with their friends, doing the same things, you know, people do have done for decades that mm -hmm. they're doing now at Hollywood Beach and all over the country. Yeah. Uh, but they were doing this in the middle of the city, out in the sun, pre-Stonewall, at a time when, you know, even a decade later, our bars still had blackened windows. Mm -hmm. But like the Belmont Rocks were this thriving place of LGBTQ culture. Yeah. And they um, they were places to, you know, hook up and different organizations had meetings there and friends met there to lay out in the sun. And uh, people rode their bikes there, you know, during the day and people went there to see the sunset and people yeah. went to the came home, went there after the clubs closed to see the sunrise. It was very much a part of our community. And it's the fact that I, I had no idea, by the way, that AIDS garden was being planned mm. at this, at this point. And what happened was I, you know, when I found out the bull, the rocks were bulldozed in 2003, I, um, I remember I, you know, I was all in, you know, I went to um, Tom Tunney's office mm -hmm. and I wanted, you know, I want the plans. Why was this happening? Yeah. You know, and and um, saw the, you know, there was a file on everything. But then what happened was Tom was in the process and the parks were in the process of doing the AIDS garden. So I think what happened is um, my passion for, the importance of the place was kind of out there at the same time the AIDS garden was happening. So I think the thing that I really am happy about is that there's this, um, this chance to share this history and expand it because of the AIDS garden. Mm -hmm. But because of the AIDS garden, hopefully, that causes people to um, think about what used to happen there, how there's a tradition of hanging out there, how this was a place of pride. This was a place where being ourselves out in the sunshine was a revolutionary act. I mean, I the, the Belmont Rocks are gone, but I could not think of a better way to carry on the tradition of those, um, those pioneers and everyone who, who did so much for our culture than to have it be this beautiful park with the centerpiece of the 30-foot Keith Haring um, self-portrait sculpture, you know, which you can see from Lakeshore Drive, oh, which yeah. is the great thing. Yeah. yeah. No, uh, my apartment is at yeah. the corner of um, Belmont and Lakeshore Drive, uh, mm -hmm. Sheridan. So I look out on my balcony on uh, oh, the wow. south. Yeah, so I can I can see it from uh, my my balcony, and I love. I I knew it was coming, but I had no idea the legacy of of the Belmont Rocks. And then as I started doing some research here 
for my role here at Howard Brown when they were getting ready to open it, uh-huh. I was just blown away by the legacy of it. And I'm kind of interested in, you, you said it was a revolutionary act to be, you know, out there in broad daylight doing everything, anything that the gays wanted. What, you know, and, and especially during a time when bars had darkened off windows, what, why the Belmont Rocks? What do you think was unique about that place or that setting that allowed people to... Oh, I've thought about this a lot. Yeah. <laughs> like, why Why there, you know? Okay, look at it from what was coming out, going on at the time. Okay, so it had to be somewhere where you could feel safe. The Belmont Rocks had Diversity Harbor to the south, Belmont Harbor to the north, although on the Diversity Harbor side... To be honest, there used to be a gun club there, so it didn't make you, but, you know, for what it was worth. Uh, So there were harbors to the north and to the south. To the east is the lake Mm -hmm. and the rocks. And then, or I'm sorry, to the, yeah, to the east is the lake and the rocks. And then to the west, you have the top row of rocks, and then you have that long stretch of green, Mm -hmm. and then you have a bike path, and then you have Lakeshore Drive without an exit, and then underpass. So in other words, if anything's going on there and there's any police activity, they had to come all the way down across the bike path, across the green, and those people who you see sitting a lot of times on the top row of Belmont Rocks, Mm. that's what they did, is they would look out too. So if they saw somebody coming, you didn't have to know anybody. Everybody had each other's backs. They'd be, you know, put out that joint, put your dick back in, you know, whatever, you know, uh, hide your beer, whatever the issue was, Uh you know, nothing outrageous would ever be going on. It would just be something minor. Um, And interesting. I think there, I think it was sort of had its own. Oh, and there were the other thing was the rocks themselves had this sort of topography of invisibility, which means if I stood on one level of rocks, my sight line, if I look down the direct, down a line of rocks, might just be, you know, I might not see anything. But the rocks were sort of shifting and corroding over the years. So my sight line might not see that um, there was a space where, you know, three rocks had dropped down two feet. So there was the, the little invisibility pockets as well. Gotcha. So it, it offered you that kind of perfect balance of like protection and privacy, but also community and togetherness in like a beautiful lakefront setting that allowed people to feel safe, but also feel seen by people if they wanted to and kind of have that perfect mixture of community and, and privacy when they wanted well, it. And, and you know what something like that does as well is if you're doing that at the Belmont rocks and you're having fun with your friends and you're out in the sun and then you're thinking like, you know, I kind of, let's all go to, um, let's all go to whatever this bar, you know, you're not going to be like, well, let's wait till it's dark and then walk separately. No, you're just going to walk together again, whatever. So you're taking that pride and that ownership and that feeling of it being so good and so empowering to be with your friends outside together, you know, that that you're taking it to other neighborhoods and other places. I mean, that's the thing with like with liberation and pride back to what it doesn't stop wherever it starts. You can't you can't pinpoint its importance because it just 
permeates everything. Yeah, I love that concept of like, because I think it still happens, albeit on a, a smaller scale today with smaller stakes. Uh, but I remember having that first feeling moving here, um, being with a group of friends and like, I got it a little bit for the first time, like uh, Stonewall Kickball being out um, by the the fields off Waveland and, and everybody's being gay and playing kickball and being loud and fun. And that wasn't a environment that I had ever been used to. And obviously the stakes are low. No cops mm-hmm. are going to come and bust the, the kickball. But that sense of like, I'm able to express myself how I want in this moment. And I'm surrounded by a bunch of people who are doing the same thing and feel the same way as me. And we're out and about in broad daylight and I don't have to, you know, second guess the way that I'm holding this drink. I don't have to second guess what I'm wearing or my posture. If I'm, you know, my wrist is too limp when I'm talking, like I can, we can all just be ourselves. And then after we're all going to go to, you know, a bar or to a different neighborhood and continue that self-expression, it does trickle outwards and kind of allows you to express yourself and feel that confidence in other areas of your life too. Oh, sure. One at the time, I mean, not only that, but with the bar raids going on and everything else, I think what it also did is just made people see that like the harassment was just so uncalled for Yeah. that, that like basically we're not going to take it anymore. Yeah. Like we're here, you know, this is our, you know, this is our turf. I love that. You know, we don't own the world yet. We don't have this whole, you know, ward yet, you know, but, but, um, this space is ours and, and the, the importance of those queer spaces and that sense of security and that ability to, to, um, feel pride in yourself and to connect with people. And it, it just, it's, um, it's really everything, you know, and that's what I worry about going into the future with, with, um, things sort of spreading out and, and things being too much online. Cause I think there's a lot of things that you just can't get yeah, that through was... cyberspace or I can't, I'm a different generation, but. No, I understand what you mean. There's no, there's nothing to replace that in-person connection. Yeah. The personal energy, like Absolutely. there's, there's a definite, that was the thing too, is at the Belmont rocks, there was this, the first time I saw them, I, I was coming, I was, you know, wanted to get, I had no idea. I was coming up around the gun club and I saw like two or three guys on the top row of rocks and they sort of like, you know, did that look up like, who's that, what's coming mm-hmm. kind of thing. And it just, like I went around that corner and it, you could feel it. Like mm-hmm. you could feel, I swear it was like, this is queer energy big time <laughs> coming yeah. off this place. I, it I, was, it was like, um, it was like a, a gaydar explosion. Yeah. I love that concept of queer energy because it was, totally right. it like, was, you could enter a space and be like, you, oh. had, you had no doubt you went, you went, when you went to, especially like where near the statue was, cause right. I remember coming around and just being like, wow, that's. I, like, what did I walk into? Right. And I'm walking further into it. Thank you. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And like, I want more. I want more. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated uh, how this relates to um, kind of the queer community settings we have today. Because, I mean, all of Boystown, the North Halstead Business District, is very 
commercialized to a degree and the stakes are pretty low being out and about there. I mean, coming off of pride season, um, I mean, obviously our community still faces, uh, discrimination from police and government officials and things like that, but it's not, the stakes aren't as high as they were. And it strikes me that, you know, you're doing such important work in preserving the legacy of these spaces and making sure people realize how we got where we are. Uh, do, do you think what's important for us to keep in mind as we, you know, as gay liberation hopefully continues and rights continue to be <laughs> expanded or protected? Uh, we'll, we'll see about that given the Supreme Court situation. But um, how, how do we be mindful of, of this legacy of community that has been, you know, physically... Uh, has physically disappeared. You know, the, the rocks aren't there anymore mm-hmm. and, and there's a lot of like bars and establishments that sure. don't exist anymore. Going forward, how do we kind of preserve that legacy and that sense of community and liberation in spaces where we don't have to actively, you know... where Sidetrack to me isn't an act of rebellion. Going to Sidetrack is mm-hmm. not an act of rebellion, or at least it doesn't feel like it. So how, how do we continue that sense of like radical queerness? Hmm... Um, I know that's a big question, so I apologize. I think, no, no, I think it's an important, a very important question. I think part of the, the issue is that I think that answer kind of has to come from the generation itself. And I don't want to sound like too old of a person, but I'm going to sound like it. I'm sorry. Your community is in front of your eyes, not on your camera or your Mm -hmm. phone. It's the interaction is everything. The interactions are what you're going to remember 20 years from now. You're not going to remember what you were flipping through on your phone when you were out with friends. Um, You know, coming through AIDS too, it's, it's, it's so important to have great memories of your friends and interactions and partners and everything else. And like those memories are everything. So my advice would really be to savor those and to try to make them as much as you can. And much like what happened at the Belmont Rocks, I think if you get together, with your friends and truly discuss and talk about things, I think you could probably pretty easily come up with ways that from your point of view and your friend's point of view, you could make things better. Whether it's just like, I don't know. In this era too, it's hard to imagine that every generation before, it's just been, if you wanted to start a gay group that was doing something, go ahead. Yeah, get five, you know, get five friends together, get a, you know, uh, uh, bill of intent or whatever. Right, yeah. 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 It's, that's the thing is that it's, there doesn't have to be a set way to contribute. You know, there's so much history out there. There's so much oral history, period. Um, talk to someone older who's a queer person whose story you'd love to hear about. It's really important to get those things down. Yeah. That's an act of, of contribution to your, to your, to your community, anything. There's so many places that that need volunteers too. That's the best way to get involved. And 
to tell you the truth, that would be another piece of advice I've given. I have never found like better and more interesting groups of friends that when I volunteered somewhere, the friends you get there yeah. are very, I don't know. I've met some, some great, it's a great way to meet people to yeah. find like things that you're passionate about. Yeah. That makes so much sense. And it's, I love, love, love that message of, you know, you're not going to remember that Instagram post you made about being out with your friends, but you're going to remember the way you felt being out with your friends. And yeah. that doesn't mean, I'm not, I don't say that to mean like, don't take pictures or don't post off online, no, no. but there is, I think the tendency, especially more nowadays, you to base your social worth off, you know, your phone or the number of online connections you have and things. And, and, I have a few friends that are really mindful of that, of like, put down your phone when you're together, be present with each other and really be intentional about creating those community spaces. And it doesn't have to be just going out to bars. It, no, can, no. it can be, like you said, find something you're interested in, carve out a little gay group. I have a group that. of friends that I go and play miniature golf with, and it is the most therapeutic thing and truthfully it's probably one of the most fun and queer things you can do because you can't get a group of gay men together and play miniature golf and right. not be out oh yeah <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah anyway i love um, that visual. But, but but i agree with you you know completely completely yeah. it's funny because that's how i actually met my boyfriend is through a, a a group chat about Super Smash Brothers, which is a video game. Yeah. Uh, I had played in college with a friend and he was like, do you want to join this group of just guys that play Smash? And I was like, sure. And I joined and I found out it was like 95% gay men from Chicago that just all happened oh, to love wow. this one video game. And I started to talk to one guy and now he's my boyfriend and we live together and, and everything. And I ended up moving here because I felt like I had a solid group of friends in that group chat. But that was just an example of like one thing that I was interested in that I found a group that, you know, a community I could be a part of. And, you know, it was huge for my sense of identity and knowing that there's, you know, people when, out there that. When I love that, you know, it took the next step too. I mean, you discovered this group and then you actually became a part of them. Yeah. Yeah. Like I you mean, took it to the next level. Yeah. We planned tournaments and yeah, prizes yeah. and like all of this stuff. So it was very intentional and, yeah, I, I love that concept of, yeah, taking your queer community and kind of... Well, and part of the problem, not problem, but I it's a great question that you asked, but part of the problem I have answering it is I just never know what people really want to do for fun, right. you know? And I think that's the main thing is I didn't mean to reprimand when I was saying about the phones and everything. I'm just saying that's that... Accurate, though. But I mean more like coming from an era where so many, uh, you have so few memories of a lot of people or you wish you had more memories of certain people. So I think you're actually maybe a little more attuned to sort of that. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and myself being a photographer, uh, I, I'm always that person that like just captures candids of me and my oh, friends yeah. wherever we're going. Uh, and the other Sunday, uh, my boyfriend and I hosted a brunch at our place and because we're right next to where the Belmont rocks used to be, we all got our bathing suits and towels and went down huh. there and, and bathed on the rocks. And at that point Yay. I knew the, the history of them. And I was like, this feels right. Me and all my gay friends jumping into the lake. We've got Keith Herring's self portrait right behind us. And I was like, I, you know, 
the rocks aren't there anymore and things have changed for better or for worse. Uh, but it does feel good to kind of, in just a small way, preserve that legacy of that being a gathering space and oh, knowing yeah. what hollowed ground we're on, you know, when we're just hanging around. I don't know. You know what? Something else that I think would be interesting and beautifying, I'm not sure how it would come about, but at the Belmont Rocks, some one of the other uh, aspects that was so magical for me when I think back on was that they were covered with artwork. Mm. They were covered with all these different um, representations of queer art and symbol. And they were, you know, everything from, you know, just like, you could not believe how talented this person was to, to just something simple like, you know, someone's initials, yeah. you know, like their initials with their boyfriend in a heart or yeah. whatever. And uh, I think that that could be a way to do that. I could see, I think there were, there's so many opportunities in this city to beautify. And I could see, I just would love like yeah. a big outdoor queer art gallery. Yeah, that does sound phenomenal. There's, yeah, there's so many spaces that I think people feel have to be like sanitized or that have to be like uh, not you know scrubbed of history but like people would view could see that as being like oh it's like graffiti or it's dirty but like it's not it's history it's you know it's it's public art yeah it's public (laughs) art that's that's how that works so I and no, and different cities have them. I mean, yeah. I, you know, where you have like a certain section of town. There's one up here in in Uptown on, um, oh my gosh, just north of Wilson, mm. uh, uh, west of Broadway, where it's you know just a a curved street that's covered with these incredible murals. I mean, we have so many talented artists in this city yeah. in this community that I just think it would be lovely, and I think it would be a great way to get them some um attention and a public forum yeah yeah and a, and a great piece of legacy i mean there's nothing yeah. like seeing pieces of art like that and wondering you know where did this come from what's the story behind this and that preserves that kind of story of you know the artist and and the community and everything yeah. so i love that idea um we're approaching the end of our time i've we've i loved this episode because normally I go in with a strict set of like questions and an agenda and this has just been us just like talking and it's so freeing and lovely. Um, But with that presents a unique challenge of like trying to sum this up or uh, to synthesize the conversation. But with that in mind, are there any final parting words you want to impart to our listeners, whether they're a part of the queer community Mm -hmm. or not? Um, What would you say is something good to keep in mind going forward about uh, queer spaces and queer community? Uh, what I would like to say actually yeah. is looking at the, the state of the world and the state of the country and other things that are very upsetting. Um, it's a very small thing that, that like can be done right now that, that is, uh, trying to preserve our history in any way possible. Because if you think don't say gay stops there, No it's going to go to erase gay. Mm -hmm. I mean, those two steps are really close. 
And so I think it's really important to entrench ourselves as deeply as we can in this culture to show we are part of this community. We have been part of this community for decades. We have earned our right to be part of this community and we're gonna keep being part of this community no matter what you say or do. Yeah. And I just think that it, it's absolutely ridiculous to try to do that and and history is a way where I can at least channel some of that frustration to say, you know, well, here's another tent post in your mm -hmm. attempt to, you know, rip us out of the right. ground. And it's... We did um, it before and we'll do it again type thing of like, we... Yes, you know, and, I, and, and I, that's the other you. thing is that with, with showing... Um, LGBTQ history is that it's constantly, constantly this story of perseverance, this story of like overcoming incredible obstacles. So I think hearing lessons about our past and how we dealt with them and how we overcame them and how we um, came back from them stronger is a really important lesson to be getting out there and repeating again and again and again, not only for ourselves, but for all the younger LGBTQ people out there too, because it's their future that's really being messed with. Yeah. I mean, our future is too, but I mean- You always I'm, have to think about the next generation too, yeah. If you care, that's the other thing I, I'm, you know, that just gets me adamant is there's, on one level, this pristine care about, you know, the value of life. But on the other hand, there's absolutely a complete disregard for it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's maddening. Yeah. But um, yes, there's, it only means there's that much more to do and it makes the work that much more important and it makes seeing our pioneers as that much more deserving of having their hard work and their turmoil and their sweat and everything else passed on to future right, generations. Yeah, we don't want them to have toiled for nothing. Right. Yeah. I I love that concept because that's a sentiment I've been hearing from a lot of people within the queer community, especially as our, our rights are chipped away out of the sense of like hopelessness of like, what are we supposed to do? Like we tried voting and nothing happened. Look to our history. We've been in this situation before and we've overcame it and and pushed for better rights and and rioted when we had to and and created spaces like the Belmont Rocks where we could be, you know, uh, revolutionary and queer and and all of those things. So there's answers in our history. It's just up to us to preserve those legacies and and to carry them forward. So yeah, they can challenge us, but challenging us is only going to make us stronger. And it is it is a time of challenge, but truthfully, when that sort of thing um, comes at you, you can do one of two things. And I think the only way that history has shown me that you get through it is to persevere and do what you think is right. Yeah, I love that. I. Truly, Owen, I could sit and talk with you for a long time. Um, this will be a longer episode, but I'm totally okay with it because this is, I think, such important. Uh, these are such important discussions to be having. Uh, and I, the running joke here on the show is that I tell every guest, like, we're going to have to have you back uh, because truly everybody has so much great info and I could keep talking, but especially this episode, I think there's so many different areas that we could dive further into. So uh, we'll see in the future, but for now, I think this was a great, a great uh, kind of overview of our legacy and, and ways we can bring it forward. So again, thank you so much for your Thank time. you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Of course.
And that has been our episode with Owen Keenan about uh, the queer history of Chicago, queer gathering spaces, and radical queer community. If you are interested in more of Owen's work, you can visit his website in the link in the description, uh, or you can go to www.howardbrown for more information. Thanks for listening. <laughs>